And our theme this evening is remember the poor. Two things really moved me this week and challenged me. The first was I read the Rich List 2020 Charity Giving. And among the highest was a wonderful man, Lord Sainsbury, and uh, a Christian family. And they gave away £229 million to charity. How about that? That's extraordinary. What's even more extraordinary, perhaps, is that it was 45% of that family's total income. But then what struck me most powerfully reading that list was the footballer Marcus Rashford, who's been in the news quite a lot in the past year or so, and rightly so. And he gave away 20 million pounds. But what was really remarkable is not the fact that he gave away 20 million pounds. What is remarkable is that it was 125% of his income last year. He gave away more than he earned. He gave away everything he earned and some that he had in his savings. And he said this, what families are going through now, I've once had to go through that. And it's very difficult to find a way out. It's very important for me to help people who are struggling. Is it important to us, to me, to you. I also read in the Oxford Mail this week that our local MP, Annalise Dodds, challenged the government over the recent child poverty statistics. I wonder if you read that. And it showed that 29% of children, 29% of children who live in Oxford live below the poverty line. It's one of the worst areas in Britain. And she said, it's awful to think that three in every ten kids in Oxford East are growing up in poverty. These figures are shocking and heartbreaking. They should be shocking and they should be heartbreaking. The book of Nehemiah centers on the returned exiles who are rebuilding. The whole book is essentially about rebuilding life together. And the first few chapters, as those who followed this series know, are to do with the rebuilding of the walls, the city walls of Jerusalem that define them as a people and defend them, that demarcate them and demarcate the worship of God in the temple in the city. That's the early chapters, but actually the the whole of the book is about rebuilding. And it's not just rebuilding these physical, literal walls. It's about rebuilding the moral and spiritual fabric of this people. It's rebuilding and getting right the relationship between them and God and the relationship between them and each other. The walls are somehow symbolic. But there is a spiritual, and there is a moral, and there is a relational rebuilding that is going on. And one of the things that's very clear in Nehemiah is that there is no bifurcation. There's no split between spiritual life and 
practical. There's no split between public and private. I really enjoyed last week's sermon. Christopher was speaking, and there was a wonderful phrase in there. It says, we prayed and posted a guard. We prayed and posted a guard. There's practical, the posting of the guard, and the spiritual praying, but actually both are spiritual, and indeed both are practical. Now, chapter 5, in this rebuilding morally and spiritually and practically, is all about the treatment of the poor. That's what this chapter is about. I don't know what it's called in your Bible. The heading in mine says, usury abolished. I think it should be called, remember the poor. Always remember the poor. This is not just a social issue. As I said, it's a spiritual issue. Spirituality is not airy-fairy. It's not sitting in a desert, sucking a pebble and meditating on a leaf. Being spiritual is also being practical. It's getting real. And it's doing the right thing by our neighbor. That's why the greatest command, love God and love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? That ain't a feeling, that's a doing. It's practical and tangible and visible and demonstrable. In Nehemiah 5, we see this downward spiral caused by poverty. Firstly, we see the poverty. Verse 1, there was a great outcry among the people, give us grain to eat so we can live. Give us something to eat so we can live. Not give us something to eat so we can be satisfied. Not give us something to eat so we can fill our bellies. Give us something to eat so we can live. And I think it's important that there's an emphasis there on the word live because life is at stake here. People are going to die if they're not going to eat. There has been a famine, verse 3, in the land, and they are destitute. They've got nothing. There's been no harvest. There have been no crops. There's been nothing to sell. They've got nothing to live on. They've got nothing to sow for next year's crop, and they are starving. Dying of starvation is perhaps the worst way to die. Why? Because it's long and slow and painful as all your organs like dominoes just begin to fail. In the West, people are obsessed with food and dieting. What a strange pairing with eating and with dieting. And I know what some of you are thinking. You eat too much, Vicar, and you could do with going on a diet. But we rather are, aren't we? And chefs and experts in dieting and fitness become our superstars and millionaires. Meanwhile, around the world, 821 million people haven't enough to live on. They are malnourished. These numbers are so vast, our brains just shut down when we hear them. But I've been sitting with them all week. 821 million people go to bed every night hungry. Three million children die of starvation every year. Oxfam, I read this week, claimed that 12,000 more people a day died in COVID because of starvation, because food was not getting through 
to them. Here in the West, we stockpiled pasta and loo rolls. Meanwhile, 12,000 extra people a day were dying of starvation, not of COVID, but of COVID-related illness. The greed in the West, the stockpiling in the West, and the starving elsewhere. We've got to remember the poor. And then there's usury. Verse 4, they say, we borrowed money, mortgaging our houses and fields to pay the tax. And in chapter 7 to 11, Nehemiah mentions it three times. Usury is the, is the, putting, is the offering of money and then the placing of, of severe interest on that. Actually, it's forbidden in the law of God to ask for interest on loans given to your people. But they're ripping off their own people. The harvest has failed. There's been a famine. The Persian taxes are still having to be paid. And so the poor are borrowing to pay the taxes, to buy the grain, and the repayments are crippling. The Oxford think tank, the Center of Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics, has shown that in 2020, due to COVID, the rich got a lot richer and the poor poorer. And even the middle classes got a lot richer because they weren't able to spend their money. The rich got richer because they couldn't spend their money. And the poor got poorer because they couldn't earn money. And in 2020, the, 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 the numbers are out. The gulf widened. Poverty, usury, and then this downward spiral, we see slavery. Verse 5, we are selling our sons and daughters into slavery. When the poor have no way out of debt, their only currency, their only commodity, their only thing for trade is their bodies. And so the poor become exploited, go into bonded slavery. That's what's happening here. You know, in the world today, there are 41 million slaves. Probably a lot more than that, but that's the, the number that uh, is, is put out there, of which 71% are women. No one chooses to be a slave. It's the last resort. It's the consequence of poverty in the main or war. And wars are often fought on the basis of economics, but on our own doorstep in Oxfordshire in 2019, pre-COVID, we don't have stats for last year, they found 168 people here in Oxford who'd been trafficked and were slaves. I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg. So this is the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. And indeed, this is the situation that we in our world are living alongside. So how does Nehemiah respond? Well, a number of things. First, Nehemiah is attentive to the cry. It says, verse 6, When I heard their cry. When I heard their cry. He's a busy man. He's an important man. He's got an, a nation to rebuild. He's got a city to rebuild. He's got walls to get going. He hasn't got time for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. He's an important man moving in important places with important people. But when I heard their cry, how did he hear their cry? He had to have been near. 
He had to have been near. We were hearing this morning, I do encourage you to listen online to Stephen's sermon about the Lord Jesus binding up the brokenhearted. You can't do it from a distance. I mean, there was a great illustration. You had a great big heart like this, throwing bandages at it. You can't do it from a dif- distance. How did he hear their cry? Didn't get the email. He had to have been there, close up, near and dear to the people, and he heard their cry. He was attentive. You know, it says in Proverbs, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor says God will close his ear to their cry. And then it says that Nehemiah was impacted by it. He heard it, and then he was moved by it. When, verse 6 and 7, when I heard their cry, I was angry. And I considered, I pondered, I weighed up these things. He heard, and then he responded. And we need to get angry about these things. We need to get moved by them. Jesus, when he saw suffering, was moved with compassion. He wasn't embarrassed. He most certainly wasn't indifferent. But moved with compassion, he moved towards them. And we need to see We need to hear. We need to get impacted by it. We need to get provoked by it. You know, the only time we ever see Jesus angry, the only time we... He doesn't even get angry with the devil at the cross, it doesn't seem. The only time he ever gets angry is when people are ripping off the poor, making money off them by charging too much to do the money exchange when they come with their money to buy a little dove to offer it in a sacrifice. And the money changers in the temple are ripping off the poor and putting an obstacle in front of them to come and worship God. And Jesus is really ticked off. And he makes a whip and he whips them out and kicks the tables over. You don't want to get on the wrong side of the Lord Jesus. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And you are on the wrong side of him if you are indifferent to the cry of the poor. Now, Nehemiah is not just angry in that he's firing off. It says, I pondered these things. And we need to ponder them. We need to think about them. We need to hold them and examine. This is the situation. What is the real situation? What has caused that situation? What can I do about that situation? And all of this held before the Lord. But we got to hear the cry. There's a right time to get emotional, and there's a right context for it, and this is surely it. And then Nehemiah rebukes. He's done his own work, and he knows what the problem is, and he knows that his people have been ripped off by his people. And he says, I accused the nobles and the officials of making money off other people's misery. So he goes and confronts them. That is prophetic courage. Speaking truth to power. We need people in those positions who can do that. One of the things I've most respected about Justin Welby, early on uh, as Archbishop of Canterbury, was that he saw just how profoundly unjust the extreme interest rate was on, on payday loans. And he said, not on my watch. 
And he said that he was going to actually buy out the debt book of 400 million one company had owed in debts. And, and instead of people paying back extortionate interest rates, he wanted, he wanted uh, to then sort of lower the interest. As it was, the one company went bust, I think. But we've got to see it as it is, and then we've got to call it as it is. And then Nehemiah gives a moral challenge, verse 8. What, are you, what you're doing isn't right. There is, there is a presupposition to his statement. It's not right on the basis of what? On the basis of the rightness of things, morally and ethically, according to who God is, what he's done, and how he's ordained that we should live in relationship with one another. It's not actually right. There's an ethical principle. What you are doing is not right. It's not righteous. And there's a moral principle. He says, you are bringing dishonor on us. And there's a spiritual or theological principle. He says, you should fear God. Now, how about that? You should fear God. You're ripping off the poor. That means you're not fearing God. Why does he bring God into the equation? He brings God in because God is watching. And God has said, don't you ever put down the poor. He's He's the God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It's the poor on the first person, first people group to benefit from the good news. It's not the good news. That's the that's why it's good news. Those who need it the most get it first. And God is aroused to anger when we neglect the poor. Fear God. And then Nehemiah goes to the bankers and he says, listen, you've got to return the money. You've got to return the interest that you've taken and you've got to return their farms and you've got to return the grain so that life can go on. And they're confronted by this and they're not going to mess with Nehemiah and they do it. I asked Dave this week, Dave, who is director of our charity here at St. Aldate's called ACT, that many of you have been involved in, wonderful ministry that works with um, prisoners and ex-offenders and the homeless and the marginalized, the disadvantaged, and so on. And I said, what is the number one thing that we need to do in relating to the poor? And he said, just one word. He said, engage, engage. Nehemiah engaged, prepared to listen, prepared to be moved by it, prepared to think about a response to it, then prepared to go and act and do something about it. You've got to engage. It's not enough just to hear. It's not enough just to hear and be moved. It's not enough just to hear and be moved and to think about it. You've got to hear, be moved, you've got to think, and then you've got to act. Engage. Wouldn't it be good if there was a charity, a ministry that sprung up called Engage? Remember the poor. What about us then? I'm so blessed to be part of this church where I've learned so much about these things. I've got to be honest, I Before I came here, I knew hardly anything about it, and I've been challenged and provoked by it. Have I done anything? Not enough, that's a fact. 
But in this church, we have people who have uh, helped lead ministries on anti-trafficking and microfinance communities in Africa and housing the homeless and feeding the poor and education skills and language skills. And we've had a whole season of living simply and godly. But I believe we can do more. And I think we've got to ask ourselves the question. We've got to allow the Spirit to challenge us. We've got to be We've got to have a holy fear of God and say, God, what in my life is not right? How can I change my life so that there's less of a, of a kind of damaging effect on, on others? And, and, and more practically, is there something I should be doing with my money, my time, my skills to be helping others? We as a church are coming into a new season post-COVID. We're opening up the doors. We're opening up the numbers here in church. We're opening up events. And, and there's a sense that this, this word open, it came to me this week along with the word engage, that, that, that God wants to open things here at St. Aldate's. He wants to open our ears to the cry of the poor. And he wants to open our eyes so that we can see issues and needs and just see beyond ourselves and our family and our holidays, and our, that we can just see further. And he wants to open our hearts so that we're moved with compassion and indignation. Then he wants to open our hands, maybe open our wallets, ouch, so that we're actually doing something about it. I think the Lord wants to open things. The fear of the Lord will always bring a care for the poor and the marginalized and the broken. Again, our sermon this morning from Isaiah 61, to bind up the brokenhearted, the poor and the brokenhearted. You know, when Paul was saved, he visited the apostles in Jerusalem to see if his gospel that he'd got by revelation cohered with them and spent time with James the apostle and so on. And uh, in Galatians 2, he says, they only asked me to do one thing, remember the poor. He said, this was the very thing I wanted to do. Isn't that amazing? You'd have thought they'd say, we want you to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles and preach the gospel and church plant and heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. They said, no, the one thing that we want you to do is remember the poor. And he says, that's the very thing I wanted to do. You know, often we think about Paul's missionary journeys when he's going out and he's preaching the gospel and he's planting churches all the way through Asia Minor and pushing up into Europe. But we don't often think about his money journey where he's actually going around raising money because he wants to go back on a journey of mercy to take the money to Jerusalem because there's a famine in the land. We often talk about George Whitfield, some of us do anyway. What a hero of the faith. Went to Pembroke um, College and was instrumental in the great evangelical awakening in England in the middle uh, 18th century and in America, middle 18th century with Jonathan Edwards. We think about his great preaching and his great evangelism. Do you know the thing he was most proud of? That he built orphanages. We often think about Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher and we quote him how about this for a, for a quote from Spurgeon he says the God that answers by orphanages let him be the Lord he's quoting Elijah 
And he's saying, who's God? He's the God who builds orphanages. And one of the things he most loved was an orphanage he built. Built two, one for boys, one for girls. Took them off the streets, educated them, fed them, gave them gifts and skills and training. And it it kept going until the 1980s, actually. The God that answers by orphanages, let him be the Lord. I need to draw to a close, so I'm circling over Heathrow, and we're going to land at Luton. Here we go. First, here's a couple of illustrations. I got a friend, he's a senior board level businessman. He told me how at one meeting the accountants and the analysts all got together with the numbers and uh, they said, we can manufacture things cheaply, much more cheaply, if we make them in China than if we make them in India. And uh, so we can cut the, the outlay costs, so we can, we can still charge the same price, so we can increase our profits and dividends. How about that? People are all sat around at the table saying, good idea. And my chum been a member of this church for years, said, actually, I'd rather our workers had a better deal than that our business had a cheaper product and a larger profit. I'm proud to know him. Where in your place of work can you speak to power? Speak to power and stand for the poor and get a better deal for them rather than a better deal for you or the business. And then secondly, another student I was thinking about, the son of missionary, he was a student here and uh, many years ago became a good friend of mine and uh, he grew up poor and um, in a mission context and he realized that there were two ways he could make a really significant difference, either enter politics or finance. He dipped his toe in politics, he, didn't get, he wasn't comfortable with it, so he went for finance. He now owns his own hedge fund, and he just, one of his favorite lines, he emailed me a week ago, and he just said at the bottom, something like, I'm remembering the Levites. I'm remembering the poor. I'm, I'm making all that I can to give away all that I can for ministry. It's God calling you to entrepreneurship and creativity in finance so that you can make all you can so you can give all you can. And then lastly, Melba Magay, who's a Filipino anthropologist and theologian, she challenges us and she said this, evangelicals are unfortunately stuck in merely providing discrete services to the poor without addressing the larger context of why people are poor. And there is a reluctance, she says, to engage in advocacy to create a public voice and to insert the cause of the poor into the political sphere. And I believe that some here listening online, maybe students, maybe mid-career about to change are being called to devote their professional lives either to making a lot of money to give away a lot of money or in the context that you're in professionally to be, begin to speak to the structures and say, what are we doing about justice, race, faith, justice and the poor? People, going, or people to go into economics so that, they can, they, that God can give you wisdom to understand how we can order things in society so that the poor can get raised up. Or maybe to go into politics where you can speak and make a difference. Nehemiah had power 
And he used the power for the poor. He used his power for the poor, not to line his own pockets, but to help those in need. And at the end of chapter 5, Nehemiah says a prayer. He says this, Remember, O God, for my good, all that I've done for this people. Remember me. Remember me. And you know God did. Because if you remember the poor, God will remember you.